Good morning. I'm, uh, I'm grateful for the unexpected privilege of being able to stand before you here this morning. Uh, if you'd like to start turning to Exodus 31, our text will be there. I've entitled today's message, Building God's House, because Exodus 31 is a description of the building of the tabernacle, God's original house on earth among his people. We'll look at three categories of people involved in the construction of the tabernacle and how God gifted and equipped each one of them for the construction of his house. Then we'll spend a little time in the book of Ephesians that describes the construction of the spiritual house of God, the New Covenant Church, also with three categories of people. This both fulfills the pattern pointed to by the tabernacle and transcends it. And so we'll finish up by considering a few application points related to how all of us, as members of God's construction team, are to engage in building God's house, both locally and across the world. So, in Exodus 31, our text will be verses 1 through 11, and I'm reading from the New American Standard translation this morning. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship, to make artistic designs for work in gold, in silver, and in bronze, and in the cutting of stones for settings, in the carving of wood, that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. And behold, I myself have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. And in the hearts of all who are skillful, I have put skill that they may make all that I have commanded you. The tent of meeting, the ark of testimony, and the mercy seat upon it, and all the furniture of the tent, the table also and its utensils, and the pure gold lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering also with all its utensils, and the laver and its stand, the woven garments as well, and the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons with which to carry on their priesthood, the anointing oil also, and the fragrant incense for the holy place. They are to make them according to all that I have commanded you. It's the word of the Lord. Uh, before we dive into these verses, wanted to set the context a little bit about where we are in the narrative of Exodus at this point. If you remember back in Exodus chapter 19, God calls Israel into a covenant with him, giving them the opportunity to become his own possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. The people respond by promising to obey all the Lord commands. Later in chapter 19, God speaks to Moses in the hearing of Israel, calling him up to Mount Sinai to reveal the terms of his covenant. In chapters 20 through 23, God provides to Moses on the mountain the fundamental laws for Israel to keep, starting with the Ten Commandments. In chapter 24, Moses comes down from the mountain, writes down the words of the Lord, builds an altar, and reads the foundational laws of God to all of Israel. And again, the people pledge to obey God. A sacrifice is offered, and all the people are sprinkled with the blood that puts the covenant into effect. 
This blood signifies the cleansing from sin necessary for the people to enter into the covenant with God. Moses goes back up to the mountain for 40 days. Chapters 25 through 30 contain instruction regarding Israel's covenant worship of God. The ark, the tabernacle, the altar, the priest's consecration and clothing, etc. Chapter 31 is the conclusion of God's instructions in chapters 20 and 23 regarding covenant law and his instructions in chapters 25 through 30 regarding covenant worship. So our text for today, verses 1 through 11, gives instruction for the construction of the tabernacle. This is the house of God where his presence will be in the midst of Israel and covenant worship will take place. Verses 12 to 18 reiterate the law of God as revealed in Exodus 20 through 23, focusing on the Sabbath as a special sign of in God's law of the covenant between God and Israel. Of course, after this, the events here in chapter 31, we all know what's coming, right? In chapter 32, the idolatry, the worship of the golden calf, uh, the breaking of this covenant less than 40 days after Israel promised to obey all of the Ten Commandments and the, and the fundamental laws of God. It's important to realize how crucial the importance of the tabernacle and later the temple is to Israel. I happen to notice in the... Uh, December issue of Table Talk, which I highly recommend. I read it every month cover to cover and encourage you to do so as well. If you don't, uh, church supplies copies of it. But in the introduction to the studies in Exodus this month in December, I just wanted to read part of it uh, that summarizes this very well. When we think about the great events recorded in the book of Exodus, it is easy to remember such things as the miracles that Moses performed, the plagues that the Lord sent on Egypt the destruction of the Egyptian army at the Red Sea, the manna in the wilderness, and so forth. Of course, it is appropriate to remember these supernatural wonders, but they are actually not the high point of the narrative of Exodus. All these things pave the way for the high point of Exodus, namely God taking up residence in the tabernacle among his people, which is how Exodus ends in chapter 40. Uh, so that's a good reminder of just how important uh, the tabernacle is in the covenant God has made with Israel. As we look at the first five verses in chapter 31 that I read earlier, it talks about the uh, role of the first of the three categories of tabernacle builders. This is a man named Bezalel, whose name means in the shadow of God or in the protection of God. Verse 2 says that Bezalel is called by name, implying that God himself gave Bezalel this name. Bezalel is also identified as being from the tribe of Judah, the royal tribe, and both his father's name and grandfather's name names are given. Likely the inclusion of his grandfather is because this is her, the well-known leader in Israel, who assisted, who has been assisting Moses. Her is mentioned back in Exodus 17, where as he and Aaron were holding up Moses' hands during the fight with the Amalekites. He is also mentioned again in Exodus 24:14, as Moses is preparing to go back up the mountain after telling Israel about the law. Moses tells the people they can go to Aaron and her 
to settle their disputes in his absence. So Hur had an important, prominent role of leadership, and Bezalel is his grandson. So Bezalel had a prominent lineage, and also he was likely a young man, being the grandson of Hur, who was currently serving with Moses. Verse 3 also points out that Bezalel was filled with the Spirit of God. Remarkably, he is the first person mentioned in the Bible to be filled with the Spirit of God. Uh, Not Noah, not Abraham, not Moses, but Bezalel. So why the pointing out of Bezalel and his filling with the Holy Spirit? I think this underlies the importance of building God's house properly and how the Holy Spirit's presence and power enabled Bezalel to stand in the shadow of God and oversee and accomplish the work. Finally, in this section, God's supernatural gifting of Bezalel provided him with the ability of a master craftsman, uh, able to make artistic designs and carry out the most critical and delicate portions of the tabernacle construction. God himself was the master architect of the tabernacle, and Bezalel, standing in his shadow through the Holy Spirit, was gifted to be in charge of designing all its features in line with God's instructions. You may have already noticed some interesting parallels here in uh, in uh, what the New Testament teaches about the spiritual house of God, but I'll point those out later when we get to Ephesians chapter 2. In the meantime, let's take a look at the second category in verse 6. Again, a single individual here whose name is Aholiab. Uh, his name means the father's tent or a tent for the father. This is a very appropriate name, considering the tabernacle actually was a tent, and it was constructed for God the Father. Uh, So again, we see a very appropriate name given to Oholiab. Unlike Bezalel, Oholiab did not come from a prominent family or tribe. He came from the tribe of Dan. And as uh, Mike shared with us a few weeks ago in Numbers chapter 1 about the organization and grouping of the tribes, although Dan was actually the second most numerous tribe, it was placed in the last group of the three least significant tribes in Israel. Uh, So Dan did not have a prominent role. Uh, Later on, we'll see this continue in the book of Judges. Uh, The tribe of Dan is condemned by Deborah for refusing to fight against Israel's enemies. Dan later disobeys the tribal boundaries, the division of land. The tribal uh, leaders of Dan decided their land was too difficult to conquer. So they went up north to the territory assigned to Naphtali and scouted out a city that was lightly defended and just took it for their possession, even though it wasn't part of the land that they had been given. Uh, So they renamed that as the tribe of Dan. And even later, that had a a disreputable (laughs) outcome, because when Israel's kingdom was divided after Solomon, with Rehoboam ruling in the southern kingdom of Judah and Jeroboam ruling in the northern kingdom of Israel, Jeroboam set up locations of temples, two different locations, because he didn't want his people going to Jerusalem to worship in the temple and getting drawn back in to those Judah people down south. He wanted to worship in the north, and he set up golden calves in these temples. So it was a corrupted worship of God. And one of the locations for these temples was the city of Dan. 
So having said all of that, as we see what Scripture talks about uh, the tribe of Dan, you wouldn't really expect someone from the tribe of Dan to be appointed by God uh, to this role of building his house. But Oholiab is appointed by God to do that. About the only thing we see here in verse 6 about Oholiab is that he was to be with Bezalel in overseeing the work of constructing the tabernacle. We'll see a little fuller picture of what Aholiab did when we look at Exodus 35 and 36 momentarily. Uh, But first, I'll just mention verses 6 through 11 here, because that talks about uh, the construction of the tabernacle and everything associated with it and the role of the people of Israel. Uh, Obviously, there was a lot more work. A lot a lot of things were involved here. It needed a lot of people. It wasn't just Bezalel and Aholiab doing the work. And so in verse 6, we read that God gave ability to all able men in Israel that they might have the capability to do the work that the Lord commanded, serving under the direction of Bezalel and Aholiab. So these are the instructions that God gave to Moses up on the mountain. When Moses uh, gives relays the instructions to the people of Israel later, it's in Exodus 35 and 36, And before I read a few verses from uh, those chapters, we'll just remind ourselves of what happens in between time. As I already mentioned, chapter 32 is the rebellion of the people, the idolatrous worship of the golden calf. The Lord removes his presence from the camp of Israel following the golden calf idolatry that broke the covenant between God and Israel. Through Moses' intercession, the people of Israel are not destroyed by God for their rebellion. Graciously, God continues to manifest his presence at a tent of meeting that was set up apart from the camp, but a place where the Lord spoke to Moses and people of Israel would come to seek the Lord. So God proclaims that although he will go before Israel to lead them into the promised land, He will not travel with them, thereby putting the construction of the tabernacle on hold because God is saying, I will not be in your midst because of this rebellion. This pronouncement from God is seen as a disastrous word to quote Exodus 33 and verse 4. For Moses and Israel, the presence of God in their midst meant everything. They weren't just concerned about his promise to lead them to the promised land, they were concerned about his presence to go with them, to be with them. And so they mourned at this at this pronouncement from God that he would lead them from a distance. So Moses once again intercedes with the people, asking the Lord to go with them. And the Lord graciously renewed the covenant with Israel in Exodus 34 uh, and uh, states that he will indeed forgive Israel and will go with them and thus work on the tabernacle uh, can commence. So in Exodus 35, we're at the point where Moses can begin giving instructions to the people of Israel for this construction. I'm going to read first verses 4 and 5, and then skip down to verse 10 in Exodus 35. Moses spoke to all the congregations of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, take from among you a contribution to the Lord, whoever is of a willing heart, 
Let him bring it as the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze. Then skipping down to verse 10, let every skillful man among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. So first we see Moses calling the people of Israel to supply all the materials, the extensive amount of materials that are going to be needed for constructing the tabernacle as a contribution to the Lord. Notice that this is not through a mandatory imposed tax on the people, but it's to be done by those with a generous heart or willing heart, as verse 5 states. In verse 10, Moses similarly calls on every craftsman who has been given skill by the Lord to come and generously give of their talents and time by constructing all that the Lord has commanded. Again, not by compulsion, but those with a willing heart who are willing to give generously of their talents and time. Later, I'll skip down to verse 30 and continue in these instructions, starting in verse 30 from Exodus 35 and reading through verse 1 of Exodus 36. Then Moses said to the sons of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom in understanding and in knowledge and in all craftsmanship to make designs for working in gold and in silver and in bronze and in the cutting of stones for settings and in the carving of wood so as to perform in every inventive work. He is uh, also he also has put in his heart to teach both he and Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to perform every work of an engraver and of a designer and of an embroiderer in blue and purple and in scarlet material and in fine linen and of a weaver as performers of every work and makers of designs. Now Bezalel and Aholiab and every skillful person in whom the Lord has put skill and understanding to know how to perform all the work in the construction of the sanctuary shall perform in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. So earlier, God had given Moses instruction, and now Moses is relaying what God had told him to all the people of Israel. Both Bezalel and Aholiab are filled with skill and also enabled to teach and equip the craftsmen of Israel to carry out all the work of building the tabernacle according to the Lord's instructions. Finally, in verses 2 through 7, to wrap up this portion in Exodus 36, Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab, and every skillful person in whom the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him, to come to the work to perform it. They received from Moses all the contributions which the sons of Israel had brought to perform the work in the construction of the sanctuary. And they still continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. And all the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work which he was performing. And they said to Moses, the people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp saying, let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contribution of the sanctuary. Thus, the people were restrained from bringing any more.
for the material they had was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it. So the craftsmen uh, whose heart stirred them up to participate in the tabernacle construction provided the full workforce needed to complete all the construction work. And the people's gifts were so generous that Moses had to instruct them to stop giving because <laughs> they already had too much. This is sort of like a church that has a building fund, and all of a sudden people give so much money that they have more than enough money to build the facility they're trying to build, and they have to say, stop, we don't need any more money in our building fund. That, that's probably a rather rare experience, in, at least in, the, in what I've seen in church building funds, but that's what happened here. Um, it's interesting, as we observe, Israel seems to veer back and forth between belief and unbelief, uh, and this account in chapter 36 is certainly a high point in Israel where they are evidencing their belief in God. Reminded me of the story of the uh, little girl with a curl in her hair. When she's good, she's very, very good. And when she's bad, she's very, very bad. And uh, we see a little bit of that in how Israel seems to, to veer back and forth here in the narrative of Exodus. So we've considered how the tabernacle, the physical house of God, was constructed according to the plan of God, including the unique roles of Bezalel and Aholiab and all the people of Israel. So I want us to consider now the work of building the spiritual house of God uh, described in the New Testament and consider how it parallels and fulfills the pattern of the tabernacle. Uh, so turn, if you would, with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to be reading uh, verses 19 through 22 in Ephesians 2, which says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So we consider these verses, first of all, the uh, little bit of context. Paul is writing to a predominantly Gentile church. So the you in verse 19 refers to Gentiles who were formerly strangers and aliens in the household of God. Uh, the, this goes along a lot with what we've been learning from Nick in Romans 3 and 4 about Jews and Gentiles and uh, being brought together as one people in the new covenant. We have equal access to God and share in the same Holy Spirit as members together of this household of God. Verses 20 and 22 give us a picture of the, the new covenant church using the metaphor of a building, uh, the house of God. This building metaphor is used ten times in the New Testament uh, in describing the spiritual house of God. And I think the reason why it's used so often is because the tabernacle and the temple point to the spiritual house of God established by Jesus Christ. And I'm going to uh, try to point out some similarities for you. We'll start with, again, three parts of the structure of the spiritual house of God that Paul outlines, the first of which is the cornerstone, who, of course, is Jesus Christ. That is the most important part of the spiritual house of God. I think there are several ways in which 
Bezalel's role in the building of the tabernacle points forward to Christ. First, as we mentioned, Bezalel was of the tribe of Judah, as is Christ. Bezalel had to distinguish family heritage, as does Jesus Christ, the son of David in the line of kings. Bezalel was called by name by God, as God the Father named Jesus. Bezalel was a young man when he began his ministry, as was Jesus Christ. Bezalel was filled by the Spirit of God in a unique way to lead him in the work of building the tabernacle. Jesus Christ was filled with the Spirit in a unique way as demonstrated at his baptism, where the Spirit descended on him as a dove. And remember, immediately after that, the Holy Spirit leads Christ into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days, beginning his redemptive work of building the spiritual house of God. So empowered by the filling of the Holy Spirit, Christ began his work. Finally, Bezalel did works of craftsmanship that no one else could do through the power of the Spirit. Jesus Christ did miraculous works that no one else could do. I don't believe all these things are accidental parallels. I think the Old Testament is filled with such shadows and types that point forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ and the new covenant uh, to come. So having considered the cornerstone in the spiritual house of God, we'll move on to the foundation. In the foundation of the building is provided in Ephesians 2 by the apostles and prophets. So the apostles were given authority and revelation directly by God in order to establish and rule over the churches. The prophets also assisted in the foundation by being given supernatural revelation from God for the benefit of the churches in these days before the New Testament scriptures were written and available. The foundation of God's spiritual house has been finished. We're not still laying the foundation, which is why with the completed word of God, there's no longer a need for apostles in today's church. There are also a few parallels that I see between the function of Aholiab in building the tabernacle and the role of the apostles and prophets. Aholiab was described as one who was with Bezalel. What was the fundamental qualification to be an apostle? You had to be someone who was with Jesus Christ. Aholiab, remember, came from the tribe of Dan without any impressive credentials in his family background. How about the apostles? Many of the apostles came from unimpressive backgrounds, such as being fishermen in Galilee, which was considered to be a backward province, certainly not the kind of people that God would choose to do important work. Also, Aholiab spoke and taught the people of Israel how to build the tabernacle according to God's command, just as Bezalel did. The apostles were gifted to teach Christians how to build the spiritual house of God according to God's instructions, just as Jesus Christ himself taught by speaking the words the Father gave him. Finally, Aholiab was also gifted to do the works of craftsmanship as Bezalel did. And the apostles were gifted to perform supernatural, miraculous works as Christ had done. So a few parallels there in the foundation of the church. The last 
component of the spiritual house of God is us. All true Christians described in verses 21 and 22 were being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The foundation of God's spiritual house is complete, but the building itself is not yet complete. It's still in the process of construction today. So we look back to the role of the people in the building of the tabernacle and compare it to individual believers today, I think we'll see some parallels and we'll also see some ways that the spiritual house of God transcends and is greater than what the tabernacle pointed to. So let's think about a few of those. God gifted the people of Israel so that many men had the abilities of craftsmanship to construct the tabernacle. In comparison and contrast, the Holy Spirit has gifted who? All of his people, men and women alike, to participate in the work of building the spiritual house through the spiritual gifts so that we all have important contributions to make. In the work of building the tabernacle, God filled Bezalel with the Holy Spirit. But in building the spiritual house of God, all genuine New Covenant believers are baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit, which is a wonderful blessing. As we see in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit comes upon people at certain times, for uh, certain people at certain times, but individual believers are not permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. That was a blessing that Jesus Christ bestowed uh, upon uh, his followers. And it's a wonderful blessing, part of the superiority of the new covenant that the scriptures uh, speak of. The work of the people of Israel had to be done in accordance with God's instructions and the supervision of Bezalel and Aholiab. And I think this is a good parallel. The work of Christians is also to be done according to the instructions of Scripture. When we build God's spiritual house, we're not just coming up with our own ideas of what we think would make a nifty house for God. We're following the instructions already given by God. And we're a subject to the authority of God's leaders, which today for us are qualified pastors and elders in the local church. The work of the people of Israel had to be fitted and joined together to accomplish the purpose of constructing the tabernacle. Everyone's contribution had to be tailored to make sure it was fitting in with what everyone else was doing. Ephesians tells us the spiritual house of God is being joined together and built together. So similar language is used here, and I think it points to the fact that our spiritual gifts are designed to serve others in humility in order for the house of God to grow together in maturity and unity. In fact, I think Paul applies these truths later in Ephesians chapter 4. Just read a couple of uh, brief sections there, verses 1 to 3 in Ephesians 4. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So this text stresses the importance of humility, gentleness, and unity, putting the interests of others above our own so that the church will be fit together. Also, dropping down to verses 11 through 13 in chapter 4, 
And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So the, as we mentioned, the apostles and prophets uh, do not exist in that, that way today, but pastors and teachers are equipping the church. But God did not intend for pastors to be the ones responsible for carrying out all the work of ministry. Look at the language here in Ephesians 4. The work of the ministry belongs to all of us, belongs to the saints for the work of service. Uh, so that's not just the, the job of the pastor teacher. Finally, the people of Israel gave generously and eagerly of their own possessions and time in order to accomplish the building of the tabernacle. We're also called to give cheerfully and generously, as, as Paige reminds us each week as we take up the offering. I love that perspective that he brings to, to our uh, giving cheerfully and generously, not only of our money, but of our, our time and talents. When Paul organized a collection from the churches in the Mediterranean area to aid the suffering churches in Judea, there was no compulsion to give, but rather a calling to, on each believer to give generously and eagerly to meet the need. So we considered what the scripture tells us about the roles of Bezaleel, Aholiab, and the people of Israel in constructing the tabernacle, the physical house of God. And we've seen how this points forward to the roles of Jesus Christ, the apostles and prophets, and all true Christians in the ongoing work of building the spiritual house of God, which is the even greater house of God. There are many possible applications of these truths, but I'm going to close by suggesting a couple for us to, to think about. And the first one is in the local context, in our church, in other ministries and fellowships we may be a part of. Being fitted together with other Christians in a way that glorifies God requires showing humility, gentleness, and putting the interest of others above our own to experience the unity and love that Christ prayed for his church to demonstrate. Whenever I study the scripture, I try to think of some uncomfortable questions to ask myself to honestly consider whether I'm living up to what the scripture is teaching. And so I came up with four questions, and so uh, I'll share them with you, see if I can make you uncomfortable as well as, uh, as we consider that. The first question are we looking to serve others or to be served by others? We, we could change the wording of the, the famous President Kennedy inauguration address quote and say, uh, look not to what your church can do for, to you, but for, for you, but what you can do for your church. <laughs> so second question, are we giving generously and eagerly to the building up of God's spiritual house according to our ability or have we been lured by the world into prioritizing our own comfort and pleasure with the use of our money? Important question to ask. Third question, do we honor the desires and wisdom of others? Or do we insist on having our own way and think that we have greater wisdom than our brothers and sisters? Part of being fitted together. Finally, are we happy to serve in the background 
Or do we hunger for recognition and praise and prominence like the world does? I think if we consider these questions honestly, that that will go a long way in showing us whether or not we are being fitted together with other believers as God desires in his spiritual house. The second and final application is really looking at this in a worldwide context of understanding that the vision here in Ephesians 2 is one spiritual house of God made up of people of every tribe and tongue and nation, and that our citizenship in this house of God far transcends our citizenship in any earthly nation. So how should that perspective affect us? Suggest a couple of things. First, we should be eager to give assistance to believers around the world, uh, being willing to aid physical needs of those living in great poverty and persecution. Um, Voice of the Martyrs is one ministry that I respect that Carol and I have have supported um, at times that is designed to help do this. Secondly, we need to assist in providing sound teaching and training of church leaders in other parts of the world to promote spiritual growth and maturity. There are areas of the world seeing explosive growth in the number of Christians that are suffering from a lack of trained pastors and teachers to equip them according to the word of God. We should also recognize God's work in the world. So when we pray for revival in our day, we need to pray with the understanding that God is doing a work of great revival in Africa, in Asia, in South America. As we speak, God is at work bringing revival. Uh, For one example, Ligonier Ministries is seeing explosive growth in requests for resources and training in all of these areas. Um, So God is is at work. As we look at church history, I think we can learn. We see that God has been pleased to move in different areas of the world at different times. Judea, North Africa, Mediterranean, Asia, Europe, and North America have all had seasons where they have been great centers of the growth and expansion of the church of Jesus Christ. But God has also been pleased to allow the church in these areas to become smaller and to become a faithful remnant while the explosive growth of the church moves to other regions of the world. I think we may be in such a transition now where the greatest increase in the construction of the spiritual house of God is coming not in North America, but elsewhere in the world as God is at work. And we should humbly honor those whom God is using from other cultures in building his house. So I'll close with the, my favorite illustration of this. And uh, it comes from something I wasn't familiar with at the time called the Anglican Mission to America. And uh, this was a movement that because of theological liberalism that was pervasive in Episcopal and Anglican congregations in North Africa, the Anglican church in the African country of Rwanda started a missions effort to the United States and Canada in the year 2000 and planted 265 Bible-believing churches in 11 years under the oversight and the missionaries provided by godly Africans. J.I. Packer, the well-known theologian and author of Knowing God, was involved in assisting this movement. He is an Anglican, uh, was an Anglican himself. He actually served as worship leader 
uh, in their yearly conferences under the leadership of these African men. My best friend in Raleigh was involved in one of these churches, and he said it was the most tremendous spiritual experience of his life to go and see J.I. Packer leading worship and the humility in the interaction back and forth as he served the leadership of these men from Africa who had planted hundreds of uh, good churches in the U.S. And then in 2011, the Anglican Church in Rwanda showed remarkable humility by releasing these churches from their oversight because there was a sufficient number of them now that they could form their own native associations in North America, and they no longer needed the oversight of the church from Rwanda. So they completed their missionary work in America. And that's a favorite story for me because it reminds me that we shouldn't arrogantly assume that we Americans should always have the key leadership roles in the building of God's church in the world, and sometimes even the building of God's church right in our, our backyard. So as we close, we're all part of the construction team that God has equipped to build his spiritual house, and we all have a part to, pr- to play. Instead of putting on hard hats, we're called to put on the spiritual armor of God, as Ephesians 6 describes. Let us joyfully and humbly fit ourselves together with believers locally and worldwide as we do our part in building God's house. Amen.